0: Don't sit down. I want you to remain standing with me. Uh, we're getting ready to pray in just a second—the Lord's prayer—because we've been going through um, through a series on the Lord's prayer. What we're trying to do is we're trying to unlearn powerless habits of prayer and trying to relearn uh, habits of prayer that actually work. And so we're using the Lord's Prayer as our guide. We started with our Father, so when we get ready to pray, we're not praying as slaves this morning, we're not praying as... Cogs in God's big grand scheme. We are praying as sons and daughters. Uh, um, and our Father is holy. Hallowed be your name. So when we pray, this is not an ordinary conversation that we're getting ready to partake in. This is something or, uh, extraordinary, it's other than ordinary. Uh, then we saw. Um, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So we're praying that God's kingdom would come to our nation, and to our city, to our neighborhood, to our home, and to our lives. And then last week we saw your uh, give us this day our daily bread, that we're asking God to sustain us with things that come from him not false things that sustain us and destroy us at the same time. And today we get to forgive us our debts. Uh, So let's say the Lord's Prayer together. And more than just say it, let's uh, pray it. And so if you can take everything that we've learned um, in these days and apply them, uh, you're going to see it up on the screen right now. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You can have a seat. If you want to take your Bible, turn to two places, to Matthew chapter 6, and to Colossians chapter 2. Matthew chapter 6. Where the Lord's Prayer is, and Colossians chapter 2. How many, through a show of hands, have ever been fishing? Yeah, uh, pretty much everyone. If you've not been fishing, I'm guessing that you are not a human being. Everybody's been fishing. Some of you are fishermen. Some of you are great at it. Others are not so great. I remember the first time that I went fishing. It was a disaster in every way. I was probably six or seven years old. I went with a friend and his dad and we loaded up in the car and had the cooler of Cokes, you know, and and, uh, uh, fishing poles and we went to a river in Missouri, and uh, I was just awful. I was a burden on this poor father from the moment that I got into the car to the moment he dropped me off at my house. I mean, my, my fishing line got tangled in every conceivable branch along the river bank. I, I would drop my pole into the water, and he would have to stop fishing to you know go downstream to get it you know my worm would come off the end of my hook and then i was too much of a sissy i guess to put the worm back on and he would have to he would have to do it for me and i even lost both pairs of shoes that I, you know both shoes that i had on my feet they were blue converse all stars and somehow they came off and they just disappeared into the bowels of missouri i don't know what happened to them but it was a disaster uh, you know, whether you have been fishing a million times or you started out like me, and uh, maybe you've only been that one time, all of us know the term catch and release. Just show of hands, how many know the phrase catch and release? Yeah, we all know what we're saying. When you catch a fish, Uh, When you're doing catch and release, you're going to take it off and you're immediately going to throw it back in. Well, we're claiming that phrase today. In fact, I want to claim it so strongly this morning that when you hear the phrase catch and release, I want you to think about what we're talking about today before you even get to fishing. And normally here at Bayou City Fellowship, the big aha moment comes at the end. But we're going to do it at the beginning today. And so if you were going to write something down this morning, here is the sum total of what we're doing today and the idea that we're coming around. We want to catch a glimpse of the forgiveness of God and release repetitive sin. Catch and release. We want to catch a glimpse of the forgiveness of God and release repetitive sin. We're putting both of those things together because we're here at the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And here it is. And forgive us our debts. Now you can't ask God to forgive you of your debts if at the same time you know that you're just going to run right back to it. So if we are going to be honest about asking God for forgiveness of our debt of sin, we need to be willing to release the repetitive sin in our lives. So what we're doing first is we're going to see the forgiveness of God. Then we're going to see a picture of releasing repetitive sin. And then we're going to look at a story that puts both of them together. Catch and release. So turn to Colossians chapter 2. Hopefully you have a finger there. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. We have some that are totally free out on a table in the lobby. Just grab one. If you have a friend who needs one, grab one for them. Everybody needs access to the Word of God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. It says this And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive. Um, "...made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Then He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him." Now Jesus uses the word, forgive us our debts, or your version of the Bible may translate it, trespasses. But the word debt is an aggressive word, isn't it? It's a heavy word. If you have any kind of debt whatsoever, then you feel the weight of the word debt. Credit card debt, you have a mortgage, you have car payment, maybe you have medical bills. If you have any kind of debt in this world, then you can feel the tenacity of, And the fierceness of the word debt, forgive us our debts. It's not a neutral word, it's an aggressive word. And we see why here in Colossians chapter 2, because look what it says in verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. So, problem number one for us is that we are dead in our debts. We are dead in our trespasses, we're dead in our sin. You come into this world and I come into this world dead to everything that is important. God has brought his kingdom in Jesus. It is a kingdom of life. That's why we're all looking forward to heaven, to new heavens, new earth. Why? Because there's no sickness in heaven. There's no crying in heaven. There's no, um, you know, there's no pain in heaven and there is no death in heaven. So those who are dead in their trespasses don't get access into the kingdom of God. Problem number two, look what it says, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, or your version of the Bible say, may, may say uncircumcision of your hearts. The Apostle Paul, he's reaching back into the Old Testament. See, what, one of the things that made the Israelites distinct among all the peoples in the world is that their men were circumcised this is in a day when no one else really did that. So they had a physical marker that distinguished them as the people of God. So the apostle Paul, he's reaching back into the Old Testament. And he's using this idea of circumcision as representing the people of God and he's bringing it into the New Testament. And what he's saying is we are born in this world, dead in our sins and not a part of the people of God. Who gets access to the kingdom of God? The people of God. And yet we don't get that access. We're not called as people Just because we want to, we're born dead and we're born cut off. And then look at what it says. But God made us alive together with him. So he makes us alive and that life is connected to Jesus having forgiven us all our trespasses. So we're forgiven. And look how we're forgiven. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, I read one biblical scholar this week that he translated the phrase record of debt as manuscript. So those two words and ideas are related, record of debt, which most of us think of a list. Uh, he translated it with the word manuscript, and it really just kind of added a new dimension uh, for me coming around the forgiveness of God. Because I don't know about you, but you know there were times in my life where I felt the forgiveness of God in a, tremendous, a tremendously heavy way. You know, maybe you were there as well. You know, you you spent a season of your life just living in And sin, going against what the Bible says, you were making bad choices, you were stacking up debt after debt after debt after debt, you were living in hardness of heart. Then you have this moment where you realize, oh my gosh, you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you felt devastated about the way that you had lived your life. So then, when you feel that devastation and then you understand the forgiveness of God, the forgiveness of God feels good and it feels powerful and it feels available and it feels near. But if you've been in church for a while, you may look at the forgiveness of God as something that happened to you a long time ago, and it may feel a little distant. Like, yeah, there was a time in my life where I understood and felt the weight of the forgiveness of God and the gravity of the forgiveness of God, but that seems to be in my past. But, but somehow this word manuscript kind of brought it back into the reality for me, into the present. Because you know, you know what a manuscript is. A manuscript is a story. You think about an author, and he or she is behind a computer, and they're typing up everything. And they has been a long time coming up with that story. So what the scripture is saying here is that you have a story, and your story is either the story of sin and you, or Jesus and you. It's never just you. You never just get to say, "My story is." Just about me. You're never the main character in your own story because there's always something more powerful in your story than you. It's either sin and death co-headlining your story, more powerful than you. We're all living under the weight and effect and curse of sin and death. Or it's Jesus in you. So always something more powerful and more center stage in your story than you. And we're born, and our only manuscript is the story of sin... And me together. And then you can imagine that author behind their computer. They're crafting their sentences, sentences, they're shaping their paragraphs, they're forming up the chapters, they're moving from idea to idea, plot point to plot point. They spend months and months and months and months, sometimes years, typing up that manuscript. So imagine that author completing the story from beginning to end. Perfect in every way. A full story, getting behind the computer, opening up the document, pushing select all and delete. That is forgiveness. That is the forgiveness of God. What Jesus has done is he's taken the story, the manuscript of sin and you. You, born in sin, living out sin, choosing sin. Reaping the effects of sin, living under the curse of sin, one day ultimately being separated from God forever and ever because of sin. He took that story, its completed manuscript, select all, and delete. So in Jesus, that's not your story anymore. That manuscript got deleted, it got erased, it got wiped away. That is forgiveness. That is forgiveness. There's no record of it anymore, it's deleted. And you get a new story. The story of Jesus and his forgiveness and you. And then look at what it says here. It says, And this he set aside. So before, the obstacle between you and God was sin. It was an obstacle between you and God. Jesus took sin, deleted it, erased it. He set it aside. Now that is not an obstacle anymore. In place of that sin is the cross of Jesus, which makes peace. Between us and God. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When I was a little boy, one of my favorite memories as I look back was going to the hardware store with my dad and hopefully you had a relationship with your dad where he could take you to the hardware store or your mom to the mall or whatever it is uh for you and if you did and I'm sorry he he should have done that because that's the kind of things that dads should do and my dad would take me to the hardware store and my dad's a real manly man and uh, likes to build stuff and so you know we went to the hardware store for purpose and not for toilet paper you know and uh, so he would go to to buy lumber you know, not pieces of wood, you know, lumber. Like, lumber is like a man's thing. You know, you, you go to the Home Depot and, like, where's the pieces of wood section? There's no ring to that. But you're like, where's the lumber? You know, that's, Scott, that's, that's important. And so my dad would go to the hardware store, and we would buy lumber sometimes. And always at this hardware store, uh, we would walk in, and we'd go all the way to the back of the store because that's where you ordered your lumber And he would tell them how much he needed, what kinds, what shapes, what treatment. And and they would write it up and they would hand him back across that counter a bill. And then we would take that bill, and then we would walk to the front of the store, and we would get in line for the cashier. When we got to the cashier, he or she would take the bill from my dad, uh, he, they would ring it up, you know, and they would tell him how much it was going to be, and then he would pull out his wallet, which had cash in it. I don't know if you remember cash, but cash is little green bills, you know, this was a long time ago, this was for debit cards and the magic of spending money without knowing what happened after that. Um, and he would take his cash and he would pay for it. And, and when he paid for it, she would ring it all up. She would print out the receipt. And always at this hardware store, she would take the receipt and she would take the bill and she would staple them together. That is Colossians chapter 2. When it says that Jesus has taken your record of debt, your manuscript of sin and you, and its legal demands. Now that's another reference to the Old Testament. Old Testament. Back in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we have God's law. God was living with His people and and He gives them this law. If you've read it, you know that's incredibly complicated. That's very specific because this is what it takes to live with God. And God knows there's no way that they're going to be able to live up to it. So at the same time, as He's giving them the requirements, He's giving them the sacrificial system as a way to cover over their their sin. Both of those things, the law and the sacrifice, pointing us to Jesus. You get to the New Testament. The New Testament refers to the, the Old Testament law as our tutor, which shows us that We're not able to live up to the standards that are required if we're going to have a relationship with God. But then it clearly shows us and points us to Jesus. So, Paul, again, reaching back to the Old Testament, he takes the legal demands from the law. That debt that we have against us, that we weren't able to live up to it, we weren't able to measure up to it. We had a debt, we had a bill, and our pockets were empty. There was nothing for us to pull out to pay for our own debt. And so God stapled the bill, the legal demands against you, and the payment, the cross of Jesus, together. And that's what he means by nailing it to the cross, which should be a relief to many of us. You know, I think most of us think about our past sin. We think that it has been covered over. And so everywhere we go, we're trying to keep that past sin in the past. But I think all of us have some kind of assumption that it's somewhere back there. And it's trailing us at all times. In- You know, we're church people. And so church people, we got to pretend like there's nothing in the past. And so everywhere we go, we got to keep it behind us. We can't let it come around. We don't want to break it out at parties. We don't want to tell the story. People start talking about some of those things. We keep quiet about it because it's our past. And we're embarrassed and shamed about our past. And so we're trying to keep it covered up at all times, hoping that it doesn't kind of creep up into our everyday lives now. But the good news is, is the past is not just covered over. It's paid for You don't have anything to be embarrassed about. You can come to church and praise God for your past because your past is not just your past anymore. Your past is your past nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, I boast only in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no boasting about our past here, good or bad. It's boasting about our past because our past has been stapled to the payment. And look what it says. He says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. See, God has an enemy, Satan, and Satan sets his sights not just on God, but on the people of God. And one of the ways that he attacks the people of God is by accusing us of sin. Scripture calls him the accuser, capital A, Now, the scripture also says that Satan is a liar, but when it comes to accusing me, I don't think he has to make stuff up. I give him more than enough ammunition daily and weekly and monthly to accuse me of sin. They're not even accusations. It's really just a statement of truth. You know, I've imagined, you know, what what do you think happened to the cross of Jesus? I mean, they hung him up on the cross and Did they repurpose the wood? Did the Roman Empire use it for something else? Did they hang somebody else up on that cross, just leave it intact? Did they throw it over the dump, which is right there near Golgotha? Did it just rot down into the ground? Like, what happened to the cross of Jesus? There's no way to know, and, and I don't have any idea, but I don't know. I think it would be cool if God repurposed it, and he somehow collected the splinters and the wood and reassembled it in the kingdom of God. And so I imagine that scenario, which probably is not accurate, but go with me. We're pretending, using imagination. And Satan comes to accuse you and me before God. And he's saying, hey, father, you know, your son, your daughter, did you see the way they live this week? Normally I am a total liar, but everything I'm getting ready to tell you is the truth. They... They hated people in their heart. They didn't think anybody knew, but I could tell. It radiates out of them. They were malicious. They were conniving. They gossiped about other people. And listen, not just other people, but other sons and daughters of yours. They treated each other with disrespect. They judged one another. They they lied. They... They participated in all manner of unrighteousness. Would you like me to list out all those things? Because I got a record right here of all the things that they've done. And, and, you know, the scripture says, we mentioned it last week, that Jesus is at the right hand of God and lives to make intercession for us. And, And hypothetically, if the cross of Jesus is somewhere in the kingdom of God, I imagine as Satan is accusing us that Jesus just points over to his cross. And there on his cross are millions and millions and millions of receipts. You can't even see the wood anymore, so much white paper on the cross. And somewhere on the cross is your debt, your sin, my sin. There's somewhere on the cross of Jesus a receipt that has everything I've ever done and will done. All my offense of God is there. It's not a lie. It is the truth. But it is nailed to the cross of Jesus. And what can Satan do in that moment? But turn around, hang his head in shame, and walk away. Why? Because the one who could judge us is the one who has saved us. It's God. It's Jesus who could go, yeah, you know what? I'm sick of this. I've provided for them. I've helped them. I've led them out of darkness. I have set them up in a high place. I give them everything that they need. And not only that, but I came and I died for them. I was raised for the dead. I've done all of this and they can't get it together. God has the right to be like, I am going to judge them because of the list that Satan is able to bring up about us but the one who could judge us is the one who has saved us and it puts to shame Satan and his forces see the things that Satan could say about you they are true but they are not valid they don't stick to you they're true but they don't hold any water because your sin has already been paid for. It's taken care of. Somebody else took the bill when you weren't looking. And we want to feel the, the weight and we want to see and catch a glimpse of the forgiveness of God in all its glory. But the story of sin in you, it's gone. It's erased. It's not on any hard drive anywhere in the world. It's paid for. Turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. It says, After this he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. To repentance. So, Jesus is talking about repentance here. Repentance has to be one of the least favorite words in the English vocabulary. It's not a a great thing to talk about, but it is a primary message in the Bible. Repentance was John the Baptist's message. Repentance was Jesus' message. Uh, Repentance was the message of the apostles. You can read that in Acts. Uh, In Revelation, uh, the, the letter, the book of Revelation is written to seven churches. Five of those seven churches are told to repent by Jesus himself. Repentance is a primary message in the Bible. It may not be popular. It may not feel necessarily like a good thing, but it is the message from God so Jesus meets Levi, and Levi's also known as Matthew, and he wrote uh, the first gospel that we have in the New Testament. And so Jesus comes to Levi, and Levi's a tax collector, and, and then Levi decides to follow Jesus after Jesus is invited him, and then Levi throws a party for his other tax collectors and, and sinners. Now, Levi is stuck in a perpetual cycle. So He's a tax collector, which means that he has decided to work for the foreign government that is currently occupying his land. So he's kind of abandoned his own people, and he's sided with the enemy. And the enemy is terrorizing his own people, but he can make money. It's an occupation, so he's doing it. So the rest of society does not want to spend time with Levi. So that meant that Levi could really only hang out with other tax collectors and what it says here, sinners. Now, sinners were not just people who occasionally sin. Sinners are people in the first century who said, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to live how I want. I'm, I, I understand the law of God and that it exists, but I'm going to take my chances. I'm going to do whatever I want. And so those groups ended up hanging out together, and you see that in the New, Te- New Testament tax collectors and sinners, because Nobody else wanted to hang out with them. Well, you get people like that together, it encourages a lot of unrighteous decision making, doesn't it? You ever had a bad group of friends that your parents hated, right? In that bad group of friends, no good ideas emerge. So Levi, he's got to spend time with all these people because he's one of them, and then it perpetuates the cycle because then they're going to make bad decisions which alienate them further from the rest of society. And so there he is, stuck in a cycle. Jesus comes to him and he says, I want you to follow me. And Levi, for whatever reason, responds. And he does follow Jesus. But look at Jesus' message to the tax collectors and sinners at this great feast. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, So somehow in the midst of spending time with these tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is getting across that they need to repent. And yet when Jesus calls people to repentance, they still want to hang out with him. Somehow the way we do it, it makes people not want to hang out with us. But Jesus was able to do both. And he calls them away and he says, follow me so Levi becomes a disciple when two things happen. Number one, he follows Jesus and he repents of what he's done. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Both of those things need to happen for you to be a disciple of Jesus. You need to be a follower of Jesus and you need to repent of your sin. Listen, it's possible to follow Jesus and never repent. That's what Judas does. Judas followed Jesus just like Levi does, just like Peter does, just like John does, and yet the whole time the Scripture tells us he's stealing from the common money bag that the disciples had together. People would give to Jesus to help support their mission and their ministry, and whenever Judas felt like it, he would take a little bit off the top. He followed, but there was no repentance. What happens if you follow Jesus but you're not willing to repent You just are around this and not in it. You're a spectator. So if you come to church week after week after week and you feel no connection in your soul to anything that happens to you, you don't feel any connection in your soul, you don't feel stirred up when we sing or when we open up the word of God or you don't feel motivated to pray, you're just able to let that stuff bounce off of you, I would guess that You follow, like you come, you are around, but there is some hardness of heart, and there's no repentance, and you just end up being a spectator, just like Judas and not like Levi. And look what Levi does, verse 28, it says, in leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So he leaves everything. So when you repent, there is a releasing that happens. The old you. You let go of the old you. You let go of the sin that the old you participated in. There is a releasing, and we're talking about repetitive sin. We're talking about repetitive sin and not just um, unplanned, momentary, spontaneous sin, although there's plenty of that for me to repent of. Let's travel way back in time to yesterday. Yesterday, I'm at a stoplight uh, here in town, and And I had been in the stoplight for a long time. You know what I'm talking about? Like I had already missed like a couple of cycles and I'm starting to get a little bit frustrated. You would just pray for everybody in front of you, but I was starting to feel frustrated about it. And so finally, um, there's like five cars in front of me and I think that it's finally going to be, you know, my turn. I'm going to make this light and the cars start going and then there's a gap. You know, the gap is the worst. The gap lets you know that someone is not paying attention they're on their cell phone, they're checking their status, they're digging around, they're doing something, they're reading a book, who knows? And there's a gap and I can feel my blood start to boil and I start to go for the horn. You know, at first I'm thinking I'm just gonna do just a tiny little beep, like a, just a little gentle one to let them know, hey, you're not paying attention, bless you, beep. (laughs) But maybe I was gonna linger on it. I was pretty angry And I look up, it's a gold sedan in front of me. And right as I'm getting ready to reach for the horn, I see that she has her hand out the window with money. And there had been a guy standing there and he was running to get it. And she was holding on. She knew the gap was there. She was holding on so that he could come and get it. And listen, I saw that. And for a few seconds, I was still angry. I had to change my mind to go oh yeah no I'm I'm in on that I'll set through another light for that but listen I'm the pastor of this church my initial response when this woman went to help somebody was frustration because it was affecting me that's gross but it was unplanned it was spontaneous I didn't I didn't I didn't know that was what was going to come out of me We're talking about repetitive sin today because I got hundreds of those things coming out of me, but I already know so much of the stuff that I need to let go. That I need to start with the things that I keep asking for forgiveness over, over and over and over and over over again. Levi didn't have to be told what his sin that he needed to be released was. He already knew. And I'm guessing most of us this morning, you already know the one, two, three things in your life that are repetitive sin. And maybe we can grow up to maturity and we can start unrooting some of that spontaneous sinful reaction and hopefully we can't, but I know for me, I gotta start with the things I already know are wrong before I ever get to the stuff that may be wrong. But in case you're having a hard time identifying repetitive sin in your life, here are a few ways to let you know You know you have repetitive sin when you have to justify it. If you, before your sin, make preparation for your sin, that's repetitive sin. That's not spontaneous. Oop, I made a mistake. That was planned. Or if after your sin, you make justification for it so that you can do it again. Hey, uh, everybody I know does that. I mean, that sounds like a what we hear high school students say about drugs, but it's what you and I say about all kinds of habitual sin in our lives. Everybody watches that. Everybody subscribes to the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Everybody gets ESPN and body issue. Everybody drinks like that. Everybody does that on the weekend. Everybody goes to that place. Everybody talks about those things, you know, with of the opposite sex. I mean, just everybody does it. That's justification. And when you have time to justify it, it's repetitive sin. It's not spontaneous sin. If you have to keep your sin distant distant, uh, from the things of God, then it's repetitive sin. If you have to intentionally put a gap in between I did this thing and I'm pretty sure it was sin and prayer or and the Bible, or and coming to church, then it's repetitive sin. You know, like if you go to eat with somebody and you know that after you finish eating with them, that you can't pray because there was so much maliciousness and gossip and slander flying at the table. That's not spontaneous, oops, I fell into it. That's that's repetitive sin. We know it's repetitive sin when we have to routinely apologize for the same things. Listen, some of us, we flare up in anger at our children. If you continually have to come back to them and say, I'm sorry for the way I responded, it wasn't a response as, it mu- as much as it was a habit. And it's repetitive sin. And if certain things cause the same conflict in your relationships, so if you're just having the same fight With your husband or wife, or you found the same fight with your sister or your coworkers or your roommates, and it's just the same fight over and over again. One person in that relationship is choosing repetitive sin in that moment. And when God brings that knowledge to us, we have to release it. We have to let go of it. Because when we truly repent, we release things because Repentance without releasing is just an apology. You ever been apologized to about the same thing by the same person more than once? You know, somebody said, hey, uh, you know, you, you caught them talking bad about you, and you had the courage to say something like, Hey, you know, hey, I heard you were throwing me under the bus the other day. What's what's going on about that? And they were like, oh man, I'm so sorry, I'm a terrible person, terrible human being. I apologize seriously. I don't know what came over me and they're worse than me, but I'm sorry for what I did, you know, because you always got to compare yourself to somebody to make you look better when you're apologizing. It's just a rule. Um, And then they do it again and apologize again. It's hollow, isn't it? Because there's no change. It was just words. And repenting without... The releasing of sin is just an apology. And after a while, all of our apologies are kind of hollow. If attached to it is not, I need to let this stuff go and I need to let it go in a real, in a real way. But repentance, again, it's, it's painful in our minds, but it should be a, a positive thing as well. Jesus says in Mark chapter one, he says, repent. Repent. And believe the gospel, which means believe the good news. See, when you repent, the kind of repentance we're talking about today is we're not just repenting away from something, we're repenting to something. We're repenting away from sin, but we're repenting to good news. We're repenting away from the presence of evil in our lives, and we're repenting towards the presence of good, the presence of Jesus. Some of us have have put off repentance and all we've done is put off good. Some of us have thought, I want to hold on to my sin because it's the only thing I've known and the only thing that we're delaying is the greatness of God on display in our lives. You're like, well, why would I want to repent? Well, you want to repent because kingdom love is longer lasting than Worldly love and kingdom peace is more holy and gentle than worldly peace and and kingdom purpose is more deeply satisfying than than worldly purpose and kingdom joy is is deeper and truer than than worldly joy and if you refuse to repent you 're just're just settling for something less than what God has offered you because you are a son or a daughter and you are a part of the people of god we're not just repenting away from something today we're repenting towards something good and the good that god offers is on a whole different stratosphere than the good you can find here then we can see both of these things together in john chapter eight you can turn there if you want to but i'm just going to tell it to you in john chapter eight it's a familiar story even if you haven't been around church in a long time jesus is teaching in a temple and this big crowd is around him, and, and we don't know exactly what he's teaching, but as he's teaching, these Pharisees and, and scribes, religious leaders, they break into the circle, and they hated Jesus. At first, they were interested in Jesus. They thought maybe they could claim him a little bit, but then they saw Jesus wasn't going to be claimed by anybody, and so they just started hating him. And so they break in on Jesus' teaching, and they throw this woman down onto the ground. And they have caught her in the act of adultery. Like in the act. They didn't hear about it. They didn't do an investigation. Like somebody caught her and an unidentified man in the middle of committing adultery together. And for whatever reason, they just grabbed her and not him. And they brought her right there in front of Jesus. And it's a trap. It's a trap because they know that Jesus will want to forgive her. Was so crazy that they knew that this was Jesus' disposition that he would want to forgive. Does anybody know that about us? Does anybody look at us as a church and go, man, that's the safe place to confess sin because they just saw automatic responses to forgive. No, I don't think that's what anybody thinks of the church. Listen, I think like gossip and accusations against some other people should just bounce off of us. Like people should get tired of telling us that stuff because they know like, well, they're just going to take that person's side because they're just going to forgive. This is a forgiver. So it's no point in saying something salacious because they just forgive immediately. takes all the fun out of it. And they knew Jesus was just going to forgive her and, but they, they trapped him here because the law said that she deserved to die because of what she had done And so Jesus is stuck in their minds between a rock and a hard place. And the Bible says that while they're making all their accusations and Jesus is drawing in the dirt, he's drawing in the sand. Some people spiritualize it and they think that he's writing the list of sins of all the people in the crowd and and maybe that's what he was doing. Or maybe he was just being a man and he was doodling while he was thinking. He was trying to think of a way out of this. Because he knew in his heart what was right. And so what he came up with, which was beautiful, is you can stone her. Go ahead. But the first person to throw is the one who can stand here and say, you're without sin. And the scripture says that one by one, they all started dropping their stones, which means they had their weapons in their hands. This is how eager these religious people were to kill her. And eventually they go away. So Jesus says to the woman, who condemns you? And I think for the first time, since she got thrown into that circle, she lifted up her head and looked around. And she said, no one. And and Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. One story, both of these things, the forgiveness of God that he doesn't condemn us and the releasing of sin. Don't just go back to it. Walk away from it. Change your life. Change your direction. Catch a glimpse of the forgiveness of God. Release repetitive sin. I think I've tried to release repetitive sin before. I've been in this moment before, even at this church. I've tried my hardest. I don't know that I have a great answer for you. Other than this, let's not miss the order in which they came to the woman. The forgiveness came first. The change came second. I think many of us have tried to change first, hoping that forgiveness would come to us if we changed and we get it backwards. What I'm suggesting to you is not rocket science. It's super simple. Next time that you're tempted to fall back into that repetitive sin, remember the forgiveness of God which he has already purchased for you. And I believe that as you picture and can see the forgiveness of God in the bloodied and beaten face of Jesus, that the power of sin on your life will be diminished. And the pull into that thing that you've done over and over again will loosen on you. And the hooks that it has in you will start to be free. So what I'm, I'm, I'm saying first is don't run out and go be changed. review and remember the forgiveness of God first and let it unloose you from repetitive sin. Because Jesus purchased it, hello, before you needed it. And that's good news for us. Let's pray together. And Jesus, we receive your forgiveness today. Before we start confessing our sins, we, we confess your forgiveness we say it out loud. We say it to ourselves. We review it in our minds. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you, thank you that you set aside the stumbling block and you replaced it with the cross. Why don't you just take a second and just rehearse the forgiveness of God to yourself. Why don't you just say to yourself in a spirit of prayer, I've been forgiven. i have forgiven. My debt is paid. I got a new story. And now, if there's any repetitive sin in your life to confess, why don't you just go ahead and confess it in light of the forgiveness that's already there.